Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, inna alhamdulillahi na'hamaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ghfiruhu wa nasta'hdi'u wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiyati a'malina فمن يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ثم اما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته this week i have the pleasure of conversing with dr will call how are you sir alhamdulillah doing well alhamdulillah very good mashallah good to have you man as always uh, the topic for this week is iniquity which is one of those words we scarcely use outside of a literary context mm. you know in fact if somebody says iniquitous i assume they're being humorous yeah so bring that bring that word closer when you think iniquity bring bring that a little closer what do you what do you think well i i think you're right because i was chuckling a little bit when i saw the topic I was like this this sounds juicy you know um iniquity I I the first thing I thought of was actually pulp fiction um Samuel L Jackson he's Ezekiel 25:17 yeah iniquity the iniquity of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men which <laughs> is a very violent scene in that movie but it's also it's kind of funny you know uh um, sure. so I I was planning to lean on the book quite a bit uh but you know i was reading over the the passage and he defined iniquity as harming others without cause mm-hmm. and i was like okay that still seems like very broad to mm-hmm. me so you know i i was hoping one of the first things we could do is actually like define this word the the arabic word is bughi right mm-hmm. um so maybe let, let's just work on translating that a well, little further bughi is a kind of harm that one creature uh, perpetrates against another creature but there's usually kind of a, a very distinct positionality mm. right so it's uh you know a ruler can be iniquitous mm-hmm. a mother can be iniquitous to her children a husband can be iniquitous an imam can be iniquitous mm. right so it's it's uh transgression but it's transgression that's supported by some kind of hierarchical uh relationship between the two parties okay yeah so you're doing it from a position of authority it's it's abuse mm. from a position of authority mm. this is iniquity mm. right that, that that's interesting cuz you know i I struggle with this sometimes in the being muslim class like how how do i make this relevant to the people who are actually sitting in the room here with me um you know if i had to venture a guess i i would bet we don't have too many iniquitous people in the room with us tonight um you know like sometimes like we're we're going over stuff and i'm thinking you know like we talk about sin we talk about uh uh damaging uh character traits things like that and I'm, i'm thinking you know these people are sitting in uh a class on islam on a wednesday night you know 
they're probably pretty good people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like if I had to guess, you know, they, they're, they're probably um, excellent people. Um, so, you know, it, I, I would be curious to see where we could actually take this conversation. Well, for me, deliberation on iniquity begins with the hadith of the Prophet all of you are leaders and all of you will be held accountable for the way you led right so in a sense we all occupy positions of leadership different kinds of leadership Right, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, It is God who raised some of you above others in rank to test you in what He's given you. Now, one of the reasons we can't really appreciate the fullness of that verse is we tend to think about status either as a source of hierarchy, right? Like the workplace, this is my superior, I'm her subordinate, right? Mm -hmm. Or we think about it in terms of social economic status. This person is wealthier than me, or this person has more money than me, etc. right? Authority is when you are in a position of advantage vis-a-vis -vis the other person. Mm -hmm. So when I take my car to my auto mechanic and I give him my car, because I hear some knocking, in that moment, he's in a position of authority over me. Mm -hmm. Because right. if he wants to abuse his power, it's very easy for him to do so, right? Even though I'm the client, you know, he's the proprietor, he's the vendor. But in that moment, he has all of the power. Mm -hmm. If he wants to come out and say, you need a new transmission, it's going to be uh, $4,000. You know, we used to joke around that some auto mechanics were... Uh, we call them $2,000 auto mechanics because no matter what the problem was, it was going to cost $2,000, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Or we would say when he, you know, uh, does the diagnostic, he gets on the phone with his wife and he says, how much is that fur coat you want? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> $3,000. Yeah, it's going to be about $3,000. You know what I'm saying? So in that, even though we wouldn't typically think that an auto mechanic could be iniquitous or we wouldn't think that somebody preparing someone's food could be iniquitous. Or we wouldn't think that um, people that, that, that we might see as, they're not leaders. They don't have authority. No, they actually do have authority, mm -hmm. right? We're constantly in positions of disadvantage and advantage in our worldly transactions all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, that helps. I mean, that, that kind of like grounds it for me. So, you know, the, the first thing that came to my mind as you were describing that, is my relationship with my sons, right? Um, which, you know, it totally becomes clear, by the way. You always wondered before I got married, why is marriage half your dean? Um, you, you find out. Because <laughs> it's like oh, yeah, the testing ground, like all this stuff that we talk about, like in purification of the heart. It's like, mm -hmm. you, well, let's see if you can really do it. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, just recently with my oldest son, he's five. And I'm usually pretty patient with him, pretty nurturing. Mm -hmm. But when I see him disrespect his mother, I, I tend to fly off the handle mm -hmm. a little bit. And I saw that last week. And, uh, you know, I, 
I just decided to like catch myself mm. and like, I'm going to dig into this, figure out why he did it. Mm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like, you know, just sort of straighten him out, which is the way I, I, I tend to like, you know, uh, uh, mollify my own feelings about what I'm doing. He's like, oh, I'm going to straighten him out right now. Usually just end up like making him feel hurt. And, mm. um, but, you know, I talked to him and I realized, oh, like he, he like perceived something that she did. And, you know, we were actually able to talk about it. And, you know, he realized like, oh, she, she wasn't doing this thing that I thought she was doing. And then he just went and apologized to her. And like, we were all happy Mashallah. at the end. But, you know, it, it, it made me realize like, I really could have done him wrong in, mm -hmm. in that situation. Mm -hmm. And I have done him wrong probably in the past, um, just because I have this feeling, well, I'm going to straighten him out. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, what's kind of unsettling to me about that is like the iniquity my own iniquity in that moment, mm -hmm. I could have felt completely justified in doing, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, even if it's sort of like, sort of tears at my heart a little bit, you know, I just, I pushed that aside. I'm like, no, no, I, I had to do it. You know, I, I, I couldn't let that slide. Mm -hmm. Right. But mm -hmm. it, in fact, um, you know, I would have felt morally justified in my iniquity, in that moment, which is uh, a scary thing to think about. Yeah. There was a, an 18th century, Syrian scholar named Kawakibi. And he's looking at his contemporary Darul Islam, kind of just the Muslim world broadly. Mm -hmm. And he said, the biggest problem among the Muslims is istibdad, which is a word that means despotism or tyranny. Mm -hmm. And he said, it exists at every level of our society. This has become like a pathology, right? And this was in the 18th century, wow. right? This has become a pathology among Muslims. He said, everybody who is in a position of subordination to anyone else will be made to feel the brunt of that subordination. He said, husbands treat their wives like this and women treat their children like this and employers treat their employees like this and the governors treat the governed like this mm. men treat women like this the wealthy and landed treat the disenfranchised and poor like this mm. and he said often when somebody is critiquing some aspect of societal injustice they're just getting like a part of it like if you're just talking about misogyny you're, 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 you're seeing something that's real, but like Sheikh Hawakibi was zooming out saying, but it's bigger than just men treating women like this, mm -hmm. right? That is only reflective of larger trends of tyranny and despotism and abuses of power in the society. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, I, didn't, I actually didn't read the book. Dr. Sherman Jackson referred me to the quote. And then I read the book. And I was in Egypt around the time of the Arab Spring. You know, funny thing is, subhanAllah, I'm on the phone with Dr. Rami Nashishibi from Iman. And he said, are you going down to Tahrir? And I was like, hell no, I'm not going down there. I'm not going down to Tahrir. He said, you are an African-American in Egypt at the time of this uprising. Man, you have to go down there see what's happening so that you can document what's happening for posterity. This is for your memoirs. 
I was like, yeah, you're right, man. I went down, the authorities sprayed a canister of something. It made me itch terribly. I just started itching really, really badly. I said, okay, I got everything I need for my memoirs, man. You know, and I went back to my apartment in Mokata. But when Husni Mubarak, who was the soon to be deposed uh, uh, president, um, came on television, he was talking in this very paternalistic, almost, you know, I know you guys are a little upset about some things happening in Egypt and I promise, you know, things will change, but I urge you, be calm, just relax. And I just, I said, this is like an abusive father yeah. attempting to mollify or pacify people that he's been abusing for a very long time. And that quote of Sheikh Kawakibi came back to me that, man, this is a tendency that we see among Muslims, mm -hmm. you know? And I would bet that at some level, he, he really didn't get it. No. You know, uh, like, like in the same way where I, you know, I probably often felt justified. And here he is, <laughs> and, you know, like the way I would deal with my son. Like he probably felt like what, whatever it is that they're demonstrating about is, is really, it, it's not all they're making it out to be. I'm not that bad of a leader. And, you know, he could probably give you a long list of like all the things that he had done for the Egyptian people. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, so it, 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 it kind of goes to show you like what is we, we had this label for it, like uh, unjustly harming another. Mm -hmm. and, and yet uh, we, we probably are incapable of seeing that harm oftentimes. He says its cause, the cause of iniquity is the powerfully intoxicating wine, love of worldly position, So remember, if you use, if you wish to turn this intoxicant into useful vinegar, right? So he begins by saying, the root cause of iniquity is love of leadership that one uh, is intoxicated by having a position of power over someone else. Mm. Um, he says, <laughs> he says, but remember this, right? So he says, remember um, how detrimental abusing power can be to your spiritual standing if you want to use a position of advantage as something that will benefit you. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I wonder if maybe we could both be a little bit vulnerable here. Um, because you know, I, I remember when I first started working here full time and there, there was this back and forth that I had with Ali Dia, our ED, mm -hmm. and other people on the team uh, because I would, I would sign everything Will Caldwell. Um, if I was giving the khutbah on a Friday, I, I would say, all right, put Will Caldwell on the, on the advertisement. And they were saying, you need to start calling yourself Dr. Will Caldwell. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I mean, 
it sort of lends credibility to Tatlif, you know, um, and look, you earned the title, so like use it. And, you know, like for a number of like personal reasons, I, I was hesitant, you know, I, I really felt like, well, I didn't go into academia, it's an academic title, like, I feel like I've moved past it in so many ways, um, but, but they convinced me to do it. I was just at home over the weekend, and um, I, I missed Juma. I, was, I left on a Friday, and I was really missing being at Juma. Um, I mean, for, for one reason, like I just enjoy coming here. Uh, I, I enjoy seeing my friends. But I have to be honest, a part of that was, you know, people that I don't know come up to me and they say, Salaam Alaikum, Dr. Caldwell. Hmm. Nice to meet you. Uh, hmm. I saw your khutbah live streamed or whatever. And that feels good. Sure. You know? Sure. And uh, I've, people have been calling me Dr. Caldwell for like well over a year now. I guess I've gotten used to it. Mm -hmm. And I, it, I realized, I was like, wow, you know, uh, something about this is like really like seeped into my heart. Where mm -hmm. like, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, um, I, I do actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it's like, even if you don't go in to a position of authority, not that I have much here at Tatlif, but I do have some, um, not seeking that, that there's a way that you just really can't fully avoid it's that, that love of leadership that, that will just enter your heart. Mm. You know, it's interesting you say that because Ibn Hazm, the famous Andalusian scholar, he said, the only thing that pushes a person to, um, uh, to learn, to become knowledgeable, to become prominent in something. Mm -hmm. He was talking particularly about seeking religious knowledge, is that they don't want to be treated like a thing of no consequence. Mm -hmm. He was saying, this is just a part of the fitrah. You know, when I first embraced Islam, I saw the respect afforded to people that, uh, you know, uh, possess knowledge. Mm -hmm. right? I saw the way that people were greeting them. I saw the way that people were um, uh, anticipating their arrival. You know, and this can be particularly um, pronounced among men because men are very confrontational in my experience and very kind of like the Prophet said, like, like putting everybody in their proper place. Even when we attempt a kind of egalitarian ethic, sometimes it's just, it's very difficult, right? There's a, you know, there's alphas and betas and sigmas and all of that craziness, right? Also part of me, really wanted that for myself. Like I wanted to be someone that people were happy to see me. I wanted to be someone that people greeted very respectfully. I wanted to be someone that was very highly regarded in my community. And I've, I remember when it all came into perspective for me, um, I was graduating in Azhar and for the entire time, I had been propelled by this like desire to be not famous, but like uh, to be seen as uh, dignified, mm -hmm. to be seen mm -hmm. as worthy, to be seen as you know, consequential, 
right, of sig significant mm -hmm. in some way, right, to, to uh, transcend obscurity, right? And I remember one of my teachers, maybe he could see this in me because we were graduating and I was looking like, and he pointed to his headdress, which is called a tarbush, right? The famous Azhari, it's a red fez, the tassel is like this. There's a white turban with no tail. This is called a tarbush. Somebody that wears it is mutatarbish. Mm -hmm. And he said, when you wear this, which for him was symbolic of being a religious scholar. He said, remember. He said, people will respect you without even knowing you. People will ask you crazy questions thinking that you can answer. He said, if you walk around Egypt long enough wearing this, people will come up to you like, Sheikh, I think my husband is possessed by a jinn. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> can, can you help me? You know what I'm saying? He said, but, but no, that it's not you. You haven't even done anything. It is a kind of husnat dhan. It is a good opinion that they have of the scholarship this represents because of the selfless service of all the people before you who wore this. Mm. And when you meet those people, you can behave in an entitled way. You can behave in a, a, a self-serving way. You can uh, ingratiate your nafs through you know, trying to elicit some kind of deference from them and you will destroy all of the respect and veneration that they have for this. Because in retrospect, and it always happens in retrospect, mm -hmm. they will say, that guy from Azhar, what a selfish jerk. What an entitled loser. Mm -hmm. And then he said, the person that comes after you that puts on the same headdress, it will mean nothing to them. Mm. And so- That's profound. You know, it will mean nothing to them. And I remember saying to myself, I have to be committed to working on myself and really trying to the best of my ability to embody an ethic of serviceness, serviceness, service and community. Mm -hmm not wanting to be above or not wanting to be um, um, seen as being better than anyone. And if I fail to do that, then this privilege of, of being in this line of teachers that graduated from th this institution, I have essentially belied, I have essentially uh, dishonored you know, mm. that privilege. So how did you... Um... Uh, how do you pull yourself back from that in those moments where you, you sort of feel yourself going a little off the rails? Me? All I have to do is go home. <laughs> Everybody's laughing because it's true. <laughs> All I have to do is go home. Hadiyah's there. <laughs> All I have to do is go home. She's there. And it's going to be a reminder of just how low my state is <laughs> and how low my rank is. You know, I'll, I'll find out in about uh, 45 minutes, in about 45 minutes, you know, so I think. Um, I'll refrain on commenting on that since my wife's in the back. <laughs> no, but, 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 but in all seriousness, 
for me, it's, it's, it's always remembering that it's not, it has nothing to do with me. If, if people feel any respect, um, it's just the esteem they have for knowledge. Mm-hmm. Even when they call you doctor, it's the esteem they have for knowledge. Mm-hmm. And in some way, they associate you with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, I'll say this and I'll, I'll um, you know, in, in, in America, the strongest nisba or affiliation that we can have, even st- I think in a place that's ostensibly a meritocracy, even stronger than being from a certain family or um, is you, the school that you went to. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, people beam when you say, where did you do your undergrad? In Cambridge. <laughs> they don't even want to say Harvard. Mm-hmm. Right? You can, they're already, you know, they, they call it the Harvard card. Right? And um, I remember listening to one scholar. He said, it's not important if you went through the university but does the best of the university go through you? Mm. It's not important that you went through the University of Chicago. Does the University of Chicago go through you? Right? It's not important that you went to Yale. Does Yale go through you? Mm-hmm. It's not important that you went to Northwestern. Does Northwestern go through you? Because people, people, people haven't learned anything about you. They don't They've, they've never seen any of your work or your scholarship. It's just a good opinion that they have of the institution. Mm. And that's it. Yeah. And you're the beneficiary of that and never forget that. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm sorry for my kids, y'all. No, no, <laughs> no, no. It's no. okay. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. I mean, a place this big, how can you help? You know, you have to run around, man. Shouldn't Alhamdulillah. Well, yeah, we'll continue, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. How are we doing? Good. We're doing good. Yeah. Good job. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So I think, I think you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's what I try to call to mind, that it has, it has nothing to do with anything you personally have done. It has nothing to do with that, mm-hmm. right? Um, ironically, with every strong affiliation that we enjoy, whether it is to a university or a place, you have to recall somebody did something in the past that earned this place respect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're just, the, you're, just the, you're just the person that's just kind of standing on their shoulders. It's you haven't- Riding the waves. You, just, you haven't done anything. Yeah. Hey, what have you done? Mm-hmm. Nothing, yeah. right? Until you actually do something. And then the, the, the challenge becomes gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I'm distracted by my kids. I'm, I'm waiting for my youngest to tear something up, um, which is what he usually does at home. So, <laughs> well, there he goes. That's, that's a good start. Mashallah. Mashallah. Alhamdulillah. 
Alhamdulillah. Now we're all looking at him. He doesn't even know. This is this is bliss. You almost have to let this just, you have to let this is bliss. You have to let it go. Look, he came, made a seat, sat on it, came next, came next to Sanya, said, Salam alaikum. Do you like this? I like it too. That's my dad up there. Alhamdulillah. Let's keep going. You know what I'm saying? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. But, but, so how do you pull yourself back from that? Well, I, I think it's similar to what you mentioned. Um, you know, I, I think if people knew what went into getting a doctorate, they would probably think I'm far more boring than they, they do otherwise, you know. Well, you're not boring, but you know, mashallah. Well, you know, the, I, I think the work is like much of the time. It's really just, you know, mm. it, it, it's a lot of, you know, just sitting by yourself. Like, it, doctor sounds so great. Like, just call someone doctor. It sounds grandiose. Quite. Um, it sounds like you've, you've really like gone out and accomplished something. I, I stayed in and, you know, wrote a long paper. You know, um, I don't think it's that simple, but I, I, well, I, I yeah. know what you're attempting to express. One of the things I, I that you mentioned earlier that I, I really still to this day, um, I remember being impressed uh, by this about Muslims when I first embraced Islam. And I still am that, you know, we are a community of people who really honor those who have knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's not. Uh, that's not normal in this society. No. And I think we should definitely appreciate that quite a bit, that um, people of learning are respected and valued in our community, like to, to have any sort of title whatsoever that, that suggests that you are a person of learning. I mean, you're right. Like, um, even when I walk into spaces where I don't know anyone and I'm introduced to people, um, there is sort of like this, respect that's given to me, uh, even though I, I've done nothing for these people, I, I've done nothing for their institution. Um, and that, that's a really special thing, because I, I think we live in a profoundly anti-intellectual society, mm -hmm. and people make fun of PhD students sure, know, yeah. a lot, um, <laughs> yeah. much of it deserved. But um, to have a community where that's actually valued is a profound thing. I think what, I mean, to maybe like, bring it back around to the topic of iniquity we need to realize that like whenever honor is given that 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 sort of hierarchy that you mentioned earlier that's created right mm. um, and so the possibility of some form of iniquity arises it becomes possible mm -hmm. and, and so we we sort of have to be aware of that and and know how to guard ourselves against that because I, I, I promise you, like, sometimes I, I think I could walk into, like, when I do a wedding, for example, I, I did a wedding maybe a month ago. Alhamdulillah. And it's always a huge honor to be asked. But, you know, I come in, I'm meeting these two families that I don't know, and I'm being introduced as Dr. Will Caldwell. And I, I think, you know, I could get up there and do something crazy. I could say something wild. I could, you know... Uh, I could, I, I don't want to think about the extent of things I could do, and people would still sort of let me slide because I'm a doctor. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have to realize that, again, I'm trying to like bring it full circle here, that when those hierarchies are established, because we do value knowledge, and that's a good thing, it creates the possibility 
for those that we esteem to be iniquitous. Yes, yes. He continues, how many a leader achieved his heart's desire of rank and position, yet in the end, the devotee and his object of devotion were leveled to equal planes by death. So he's, he's offering a very um, grave referendum on iniquity, mm -hmm. saying, if you think that some worldly position gives you the right to mistreat somebody, know that your rank and their rank will be the same when you meet God. Mm -hmm. right? there, aren't, there is no positionality in death. This woman, this man that you thought you could mistreat because you were socially more prominent or seemingly more, more significant or in death, you will be the same. Mm -hmm. And the Prophet والسلام, he said, that oppression will be darkness when we meet God. And if there is one thing that you wanna meet God with your soul absolutely free of, it's oppression. You don't want to oppress anyone. You don't want to mistreat anyone. The Prophet said, The Muslim is the one from whom other Muslims are safe from their tongue and hand. So, you know, if you think, yeah, I'm over this person, in a sense, uh, I have a right to do this to them, right? It's only right that I exploit this person. Mm -hmm. It's only right that I take advantage of them. And you see a lot of this, um, you know, to my mind, in employer-employee relationships. Mm -hmm. So the idea that as the business owner, I'm making, who knows what I'm making? And maybe I'm not even paying my employees a living wage. The idea that, well, I can set the price that I want to compensate at whatever I want. It's my business. As long as it adheres to, you know, mandatory minimums and it's my business. Be careful. Be careful. And know that your rank and the rank of the individual in your employ will be the same when you meet Allah. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, you know, Aisha, radiallahu anha, commenting about the character of the Prophet she said he never struck a child, he never struck a servant, he never struck a woman, he never struck an animal, he never struck another man except fighting in the path of Allah. So he very much lived by that ethic of I am someone from whom people are safe from my tongue and from my hand. Mm -hmm. But you know, some, sometimes so much is made of um, worldly status, right? This is how the bosses, you know, are entitled to behave, right? That, you know, we need to, we need to sometimes remind each other that, yes, you might enjoy some worldly status or privilege or rank or position, but brother, it's not permanent. Mm -hmm. It's not permanent, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you know, the, the idea of death as a, the great leveler of all people is, uh, 
poignant for me right now. Um, when I went home over the weekend, it was to visit my aunt who was on her deathbed. Mm. And she was the, the first of her brothers and sisters to pass away. And I think part of the shock that my mom and my aunts and uncles were feeling was she was the one that like, if, if you thought any of them were like ever just like going to live forever, mm-hmm. uh, it would have been her. You know, like, I'm from Georgia. My mom comes from like a very small, like rural town. Um, and you know, some of her brothers and sisters stayed close uh, to that rural town. Others, you know, went like ninety miles down the road, and that was considered a big deal. My aunt went out and traveled the world. You know, she she worked at Coca Cola. Vivacious. Yeah, you know, and she was. And whenever you met her, she she was just like full of like life and energy. Mm. Beautiful woman, mashallah, Allah rest her. Um, it, I think the, the shocking thing about seeing her on her deathbed was just like watching this woman who like, um, you know, had, had lived this life that was, you know, so full and, you know, so energetic to, you know, she, she had a, a degenerative disease and she was about 80 pounds when she passed. <laughs> to see her taken into that state, I think was, uh, would be jarring in any case, but to see her mm-hmm. taken into that state um is i think you know for my mother and um her her siblings was you know it caught them off guard um and and not that this necessarily ties to iniquity but in terms of like how just the remembrance of death sort of cures like all diseases of the heart i think he actually says that at some point in the book like remember death and you know you you'll straighten out pretty quickly um no but remembering death is directly connected to iniquity mm -hmm. Because iniquity, he says, the root cause is love of leadership. Mm. So it's, you know, someone that the word we used to use is like they like to lord over someone else. Right. If you recognize that the person you're mistreating and you will be absolutely equal in death. Mm -hmm. You don't you know, some of that entitlement begins to shrink. Who are you? It's like, okay. Maybe uh, someone comes and they are your housekeeper, right? And, they're, and they're, they're, they're doing you the service and the favor of cleaning your home for a price. Mm-hmm. And maybe they miss a spot or they do something, uh, they forget to do something that you asked. And maybe you would ordinarily yell and holler and because you're in the position of the person paying you this is you know uh if once you remember that you know this can this 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 uh arbitrary distinction between you and this person it will end in death trust me you know and that Mm -hmm. reminds me subhanallah um you know i've often thought about raising my my children overseas right But the one thing that scares me is I worry that if I raise them abroad, they won't really be connected to kind of um, um, a certain subjectivity that home produces. Mm. So I remember being in Egypt, 
African-American expat family doing well, doing like some offshore business stuff. And as is common, they have kind of a robust service economy in Egypt. So it's, it's not like unusual for people to, um, you, know, you know, have domestic help that in America, we would think only somebody very wealthy would have mm -hmm. like a live-in, you know, person, you know, you know, a butler or a maid or, you know. But this is actually quite common in Egypt. You know, in Egypt, you see people in the back of like Honda Accords with chauffeurs, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and he's sitting back there with the whole, reading his newspaper and everything. I'm like, it's a Honda Accord, man. He's driver to the office, you know, right? So it's very, very common. And so this African-American family had uh, a Sudanese, um, um, you know, woman working as a housekeeper. And I came in, I greeted everybody, and then I greeted her, and I started talking to her and catching up. How are you? How's your family? How have things been? And his son said, Dad, why is he talking to her? And I looked at him, because she is us. What are you talking about? I said, you haven't, your son doesn't know that much about who we are as a people, as African-Americans? Dad, why is he talking to her? Because she is, that's me. That's my grandmother, mm -hmm. right? That once had to clean folks homes so that we could survive, mm -hmm. right? So when you kind of recognize that a lot of these distinctions are just the vicissitudes of fate, Right, Allah says, the alternating fates of being in positions of advantage and disadvantage, we give these to people in turn. Mm -hmm. You don't feel this sick kind of, it's like, bro, I'm, could, not only could it be me, it was me. It was me. So how dare you treat someone like that with disrespect? How dare you behave iniquitously? It was me. Could, could be me. In certain contexts, it is you. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised that. Or could be in the future. Or could be in the future. Mm -hmm. So you have this one person, and that's, and that's when it becomes cyclical. Because this person is being treated like crap by their boss. Mm -hmm. And then the person that works for them, they treat them like crap. See, that's what Imam Kawakibi was talking about. So the, when he's treating the, the housekeeper in this way, he goes to work and he gets treated that way. And you would think that this would encourage you to greater empathy because like, I know what it is for someone to have a, a position of authority or advantage over someone else. You know, I'm almost starting to think about what Imam Kouakabi said uh, about despotism being just pervasive, right? Uh, it almost reminds me of like intergenerational trauma, mm -hmm. um, right? Like you, you get hurt as a child, you go on to hurt your children in exactly the same ways. Unless, you know, you make the conscious decision at some point, I'm going to break this cycle, Absolutely. right? Like, so my, my boss is a complete tyrant with me. I am not going to go home and be a tyrant with my family, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I'm going to break that so that they get to see what an 
actual like equitable relationship looks like. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they can start to re- reproduce that in their own lives. Beautiful. Right? You know, it, it's hard. It's really hard. Like the, the number of times I've caught myself just like with my father's words coming out of my mouth in, in good scenarios and bad scenarios. Sure. You know? uh, uh, I have a good relationship with my father. It's not like a, a bad thing, but it's, um, and I've met your father. He's a, a, a very gentle man, mashallah. Mashallah. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it's profound, like how, how much of like our own words, our own thoughts even are not our own, <laughs> right? And, and actually being conscious and not just like letting these things just jump out of our subconscious, like into our relationships is a very difficult thing to do. Absolutely. Um, so whether we're talking about families or we're, we're talking about like these greater like social phenomena, like... Um, it takes a lot of work. And I think that, you know, the, when it comes to like dealing with iniquity, right? How do we actually stop it? Well, mm-hmm. like, you know, start, start as close to home as you possibly as can, possibly can yeah. right? And, and see how that starts to ripple out, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, you, you have to imagine someone who experiences like a loving, caring relationship, they will experience iniquity from someone else. Somewhere else in their lives, they will experience some form of iniquity. And, you know, not only will they realize that, like, that's not, like, they'll have something to compare it to. That's not right. right? That doesn't, that's, that's, that's not yeah. what an equitable relationship feels like. And they'll know. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest um, and craziest correlations I've ever seen uh, in my work, and you know, mashallah, um, I've toured a lot of college campuses. Um, I've worked with a lot of young Muslims. And this is, this is a correlation that I can almost like pinpoint. A lot of people that grow disaffected with Islam, the common experience, tyrannical fathers. Mm-hmm. Abusive fathers across race, across ethnicity, when you really kind of get beyond the surface and you ask, you know, when did you really kind of lose your, your, your feeling for Islam? It's usually about the teenage years. Mm-hmm. And when you ask, you know, what, what was going on at that time? Very rarely is it just theological, intellectual, uh, philosophical. Sometimes it has some scaffolding that's like, you know, I started reading Voltaire and then, you know what I'm saying? But in the background, there's usually, and my father, not the mother. My father was a controlling, abusive, tyrannical, um, fake, sanctimoniously pious man. Mm-hmm. You know. You're still doing good. Mashallah. He said, oh, great, he said, great job. Great job. Mashallah. Great job. My father was a fake, sanctimoniously pious, abusive man. Mm-hmm. And what I think happens is that if you begin to conceive, and this is kind of Freudian, right? But if you conceive of authority in that way, you end up conceiving of God in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Right? If you think what it means to have power is to be like a tyrannical abuser like my father. Yeah. Then who's the ultimate power? Yeah, God's just a bigger, badder version. God is just the bigger, badder version. And one is quick, one that has the 
um, the gumption to do so is quick to jettison such belief. I don't believe in that anymore. Mm -hmm. And they feel liberated. And you say, well, how do you feel now? I feel, I feel liberated. Mm -hmm. I feel free. And I'm thinking, subhanAllah, without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I would feel scared. I would feel endangered. I would feel drift. I would feel adrift, lost, aimless. But you're telling me, free of your belief, you feel liberated. I feel uh, free. Whenever I hear that, I think, well, what was, what was your belief in God to you? God was some angry watcher, mm -hmm. vengeful and quick to retribution. And you're describing your father. You know, I, I, I forget what I was listening to, but um, it, was a, it was like a podcast on behavior mm. and, you know, just how much of our behavior comes from these subconscious places, mm -hmm. you know, deeply conditioned things like our relationship with our father, yep. for example. And, you know, the, the way that we actually get past just like going through life in this sort of like mechanistic way where we're just reacting to our past traumas, our past experiences, whatever, um, is, you know, he was saying, ask yourself why five times, like, mm. why, like, why do you have this opinion uh, of this thing? And you give an answer and you say, okay, well, why, do, why do you think that? Mm. You, then you have another answer. You want to get five levels deep on that? And, you know, just like from doing this work, um, I can totally, totally confirm what you're saying. Like, you know, I, I was talking to uh, two brothers, actually, this is like a year ago. Um, you know, the, their mother was like, you, you have to talk to my sons. Like, they're, they said that they're atheists, and I don't know what to do with them. I don't know where this mm -hmm. came from. And, you know, so I was talking to them. And, you know, I was like, okay, so, you know, you, you decided you don't believe in God anymore. Why? And they were like, well, you know, like we, we were reading this, like you talk about the intellectual scaffolding. I forget who they read. It was maybe like Dawkins or something. Dawkins, so yeah. something like God that. delusion or something. Yeah. Like that. And I was like, okay. Uh, so we talked about that. We talked about Dawkins for a while. I said, why did that resonate with you? And, you know, they had to think about it and uh, they, they gave me an answer. But you, because, I, you know, I was like, look, I know I've read Dawkins before. Didn't really do much for me. Right. So like what we need to get to here is like why Dawkins was so compelling for me. Dawkins is like one of these new atheist writers for those of right. you who don't know. Hitchens, um, Dawkins. Yeah. That Danae. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's an emotional resonance uh in these things that when we dig into them when we ask why five times we really get at like the root of um of like why we do a lot of the stuff that we do uh, <laughs> the time it was beautiful yeah. baby you said why he just came out <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah I, I think this is true here like why are we iniquitous with people mm. like right Ask yourself why five times, mm -hmm. you know, get, get to the root of it. Probably mm -hmm. the answer is someone was iniquitous with you yep. at some point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. SubhanAllah. He continues, keep in mind that this desire, right, for leadership is about turning away from God towards his impoverished 
and miserly servants. Concern with the affections of others is exhausting. And though you may please one, others will flee from you filled with anger. What do you think about that? It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> That's what I think about it. You know, of course, like we, we claim to believe this, mm -hmm. right? I think even for myself, like th this is something where like, if you were to judge me by my actions, like it, it would fall, fall far short of what I say I believe in. Like, yes, God is the creator. He's the sustainer. Um, nothing happens except by his will. Yeah, I believe that, right? I still go out and chase the dunya every single day, right? Um, you know, I turn to the creation um, as if it will actually provide for me. And, and I'm not talking about like, oh, the ideal here is just lay back and like wait for money to come your way, wait for whatever it is you're looking for and you're like a wife, a husband, whatever, you know, I'm not saying that, but you know, like I engage in the world in a way where like, if I'm honest with myself, I, I actually expect that like what I get out of it will be the result of my own actions, my own effort sure. is what's going to get me sure. there, you know? Um, so, I mean, what he's saying is one of those things that makes perfect sense. It's like, yeah, superficially, yeah, I agree with this. What a hard thing to actually put into practice, though. You know, I think what these what 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 Imam Maulud means in these lines is that through this position of leadership, and especially an arrogant abuse of your power as a leader, you aim to be esteemed by someone, mm -hmm. right? This 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 is a um, this is a show of power. This is a, you know, a show of authority for someone. Mm -hmm. But if it's not rooted in service and righteousness, it's certainly not for God. Right? It's not for God. Mm -hmm. So I think what he's saying is like, who are you? Whose approval or whose esteem are you really after? Mm -hmm. Because there is no way God is pleased with that for you to treat people in that way, for you to abuse people in that way, there's no way this is pleasing to Allah. Mm -hmm. So who, who, who are you trying to please? Well, you know, and I, I would wonder, like, are, are we in a sense trying, when we are being iniquitous with someone, like, are we trying to extract honor from them? You know, are, are we seeking their approval yep. in some way? It's like, mm -hmm. I, I have to lord over you in order to, for you to like respect me. Like I, that's just my assumption, like when, when I do these things, which is, you know, completely contradictory to like this, this image of honor that you're trying to build yourself. Absolutely. You know, like. That's what you, he's going to say too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's like when you sit down and think about it, it's like mm -hmm. the, the whole process of being iniquitous completely mm -hmm. belies itself. Absolutely. Right? People won't they'll never respect you. I mean, you're putting those people above you in the sense that you're like, I, I have to get this honor and I have to get this position over you. You're, you're placing them uh, in a sense like above yourself. Absolutely. And it never results in its, um, uh, its aim. Mm -hmm. 
right? It, it, the intention of iniquity is never realized. Everybody hates a tyrant, mm -hmm. right? You cannot coerce or compel respect. Mm -hmm. You can compel compliance. You know, you can compel, you know, one to, you know, adhere to some outward gestures of respect, but inwardly they despise you. Right. Even if they say, oh, here's the boss, here's the big shot. And they stand it. There he is. But inwardly, they think, I, I, I can't stand this jerk. I hate him. He really gets on my nerves. So even the honor, the deference that the iniquitous one feels from the person they're dominating, it's not even, it's, it's, it's not even real. It's really just an expression of maybe their fear. Right? Maybe they don't, you know, they fear the, the negative consequence of telling the truth about how they feel about you. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's not real respect. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. A man that beats his wife cannot elicit any respect from her. Maybe she's afraid. Maybe because she's afraid, you know. Um, that's a lot of <laughs> You tripping now, man. You know, you're in a good mood since Mina came back. Huh? I mean, look. Oh, she, okay, she didn't hear me say that. You're in a great mood now, man, mashallah. But, you know, so he ends, he says, Can, uh, yet what is prohibited regarding the pleasure of others is what is procured by way of trickery ostentatious display of religiosity or hypocritical affectation. Know also that the seeker of their pleasure cannot expect the pleasure of God, the fashioner of creation, the mighty, the capable. As for the one whose heart is encrusted with the love of this world, his only cure is having certainty of his mortality. Thus, if he keeps death constantly before his eyes, this acts as a cleanser for the soiled matter encrusting his heart. Right? And this is how he ends. Um, when we think about love of the dunya, there's a tendency to only relate that to worldly things like money and uh, jewelry and possessions and no love of um, praise mm -hmm. love of adulation this is also a kind of hip with dunya mm -hmm. this is a kind of love of the dunya you know i remember i was backstage preparing to go on stage and one scholar kind of looked out there at the stage at the crowd and he said if you ever look at the audience and think about what applause lines you're going to use to draw applause from them, that's called hibbut dunya. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's called love of the dunya. Mm -hmm. Now, if your intent is, you know, I want to use an icebreaker, I want to kind of, you know, warm things up a little bit. But when you are speaking, not to impart anything, but just to elicit praise just to elicit adulation. He said, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of hypodunia and it's demagoguery in some cases. Mm. 
I'm like, this is, this is what you want just to look out there and say, what can I say that will make the people clap? What can I say that will maybe draw a standing ovation? It's a kind of hypodunya. And it was the first time that I thought, subhanAllah, when I think about love of the dunya, I think like cars, money, uh, uh, homes, jewelry, uh, 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 you know, but no, that's a kind of hibudunya. And the danger with hibudunya is that if you love something more than you love Allah, maybe Allah Ta'ala will give you that thing that you love, mm -hmm. but you'll never have him. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.